0: Our scripture reading this morning comes from James chapter 1, and we'll be reading verses 1 through 8. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the twelve tribes dispersed abroad, greetings. Consider it great joy, my brothers and sisters whenever you experience various trials, because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its full effect so that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. Now, if any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God who gives to all generously and ungrudgingly, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith without doubting For the doubter is like the surging sea, driven and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord, being double-minded and unstable in all his ways. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, we pray that your word would come alive to us. This morning, as we begin looking at the words of James the Apostle God, may we be invigorated again to the faith. May our hearts be stirred for you. May the words of my lips and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I want you to imagine something for a second. Imagine a place where the the gap, the margin between the rich and the poor is ever increasing. Chai okay, hard. Yeah. I want you to imagine a place that is full of racial diversity, ethnic diversity, really, but there is an increasing tension between the ethnic groups. I want you to imagine a place that is full of religious plurality, of full of different belief systems and believing people, and even unbelieving people, and yet while there's a harmony, there seems to be this disparate nature about them. I want you to imagine a place that is full of military prowess, whose military literally reaches the ends of the known world. I want you to imagine this place and imagine that in this moment, this place is governed by a a man with somewhat of a God complex. And that this this man has no real moral compass except that He is the ruler of this empire, and that is his guiding factor, his guiding principle, that he is ruler. And I want you to imagine discord and and frustration and a growing sense of, will this republic, will this empire survive? And of course, I'm describing to you first-century Palestine and Rome. The birthplace of Christianity. The birth empire of the text that we read and live and breathe and work out together. And of course, I'm talking about Caesar, Pickworm, Julius, Augustus. Caligula, pick one. This is the setting, this is the setting that we get Christianity. This is the setting from which our faith is birthed. This is the setting in which the Christ emerges. So we need to hear this, you're like okay, James for brothers and sisters, Why are you giving us this history lesson? Because our our faith has a historical context. And it's more than just these things actually happened. It's more than just there was an actual bodily resurrection in history. Have you ever asked yourself, right? Like sometimes the way that we as a Christian people talk about the faith, the only things that really would be necessary are for Jesus to have been born of a virgin and for Jesus to have died and risen again. And yet, we have gospels, and yet we have stories in our scripture that are so much more than that. They choose to give us all of the nitty gritty details of Jesus' ministry to people. There is this sense that what we get from the gospel is spiritual, its, it's, it's value is for our souls. And that value is achieved at the highest end, at the highest level, once we die and go to heaven. That the gospel is really in the air. And part of that is because we read all of the scripture like good, enlightenment, Western Americans. And that makes the text that we're about to read very difficult. Now, I don't want to put all of the emphasis on Americans. That's why it was the last thing that I said. But Enlightenment Western, Western people. Think about this. We're about to start a series in the book of James. And I want you to hear how the church and major figures in the church have talked about the book of James. I'll just use one for now. And say that he was not, he was not uncommon. Uh, We said this, I think last week or the week before, we're approaching the 500th anniversary of Martin Luther nailing the 95 theses on that Wittenberg of what is now considered the beginning of the Reformation, right? We're approaching that, it's Halloween, October 31st of this year, it's 500 years and here's what Martin Luther said about the book of James. He said it's a right straw epistle. It's made of straw. It doesn't quite seem to fit what the scriptures is doing. And as such, I'm not sure of its place in the canon at all. It's Martin Luther, y'all. A right straw epistle. And so as I was studying for the series, as I'm reading Martin Luther, and as I'm reading us, right, we have that same approach. When we come to James, we're always trying to figure out how it fits in with Paul. How does this work? Right? If you were to, if you were to just Google, like, sermon series on James, you know what, like Ninety-eight percent of the sermon series would include or the titles would be faith versus works? Question mark. Faith and works. Is it faith or is it what? What are we trying to figure out here? And what is that? What is that? That is a Protestant response to a Catholic concern that Martin Luther had five hundred years ago, and and many like him in the church. And I'm not saying that that was wrong. We've got to understand that we read and interpret and, under, and, and reckon with the scriptures in, in our, with our cultural trappings. And so, of course, when the big issue of the day for Martin Luther is that people are buying indulgences and literally purchasing their way into heaven and that people are being taught that all you have to do is work do more, work, be better, work harder, and you can please God. And if you don't work hard enough, then just just throw a little loot at it, and you'll be okay. Right? They're going to go hard after this notion of faith with nothing to do with works. And so they read Paul, and we read Paul consequently. And we read justification by grace through faith alone. Grace alone, in faith alone, in Christ alone. And that is something you'll hear me say. That's not something that I'm knocking. That is something that we believe. And at the same time, we have missed a sense of what God is doing in Scripture. All right, we're going to spend the next two weeks on these eight verses. I'm just going to let you know. Because this week, we have to set the scene. I usually don't do too much because it feels more like teaching to me than like, Invoking the spirit to move in our lives, right, preaching. But we, we need to set the stage so that we can understand why James is so important for us. Because I, uh, we have that historical setting that seen the empire at the turn of the millennium, at the beginning of, right, like we don't even, and even that's an arbitrary thing because we named it that because of Jesus, right? So to them, they're not thinking, all right, don't know what to do now, but we just went from zero to, it's, it's one now, one A.D., right? Like, they weren't thinking that. Paul did right, like, in the year of our Lord, 34 A.D., and Paul was with our Lord, right? And he, he wrote the message, right? Like, and that's, that's part of the point is that there is this setting where people are living and they are in captivity. Uh, the, the chosen people of God, as understood by the Old Testament scriptures, have been dispersed throughout this empire. There is a there is a residual, there is a, a, a remnant still in at home, but there are people who've been dispersed. There are a diaspora community. They are in a place that, that in some ways feels like they have rule, but they really don't because it's in to Rome. They have freedom to worship. They have freedom to worship in so much as their worship does not override their affections and their worship for the state. See, in in, in a Roman Empire, Rome was the most determinative reality there was. And so you could be Jewish, but you were Roman first. And in Rome, there was Caesar. At this point, the Senate has dispersed. They're no longer a republic. They're an empire with an emperor, and it's Caesar. And Caesar rules in, in around 0 to 3 A.D., which is how how crazy like, our, our measuring system is. Somewhere between 0 and 3 A.D., Caesar Augustus at the time, you know this story, Caesar Augustus gave a decree that a census would be taken throughout all of the Roman Empire. And so people were to return to their homes of origins. And a census in that day would have looked like this. Caesar Augustus is sending out his apostolos. That is the koine Greek for apostle. These were the messengers of Caesar. And they would come and they would proclaim evangelium. Good news. Gospel. The gospel of, Julius, of Caesar Augustus, son of God. Son of Julius Caesar. You know, he was the adopted son of Julius Caesar, who was God. Caesar Augustus, son of God. And so they start by saying, We are evangelists, we are apostles of the gospel of Caesar Augustus, the son of God. And this is the setting into which we get four people who write the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God. Now what you have to understand is that while there is a spiritual reality that is being talked about there, that is a very politically and physically and a subversive, radical statement. And that Jesus is concerned with, and I'm going to use this word over and over a lot. And so when I say political or when I say politics here, I don't mean left versus right. Right? Because ultimately, left versus right isn't what politics is about anyway. They're arguing about politics, but what politics is, is the ordering of bodies, the positioning of bodies in space, in a place. How do people, how are people ordered so that society or civilization can work as we believe it to be? That's politics. And so when we say things like, Let's worry about the gospel and not about politics, for example. We're saying something that doesn't even make sense in the very construct that the word gospel comes from. Or do you hear me like do you understand do you see what I'm saying like the word gospel itself belonged to the political realm and so when it was appropriated by Christ followers it was and could not be divorced from its political realm and a lot of times what we want to do is say that faith has to do with the soul and the spirit and heaven and politics has to do with the body and and the earth and dust and what's dying and how we live our lives and like that has to do with this and the ground and the earth and the there's the heavens which is good and the dirt which is bad and there's actually a a name for that religious belief. It's called Gnosticism. And, And the early Christians fought Gnosticism to the core and what we are in James for, the reason we are in James right now as a people is because James does not allow us the luxury of trying to separate the ground from the sky. It forces us to compress the two. It forces us to say, faith does not believe alone. Faith looks like something. Faith orders its people in space for a purpose in response to a king and a kingdom, which is why James starts his book. James, a servant of God, And of the Lord Jesus Christ. A servant of God. He's already identifying himself within relation to God, the God of of the Old Testament scriptures, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. But then he adds in, now get this, he adds in the Roman context, and and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Only one of those is a name. Two of those are titles, right? Christ isn't a last name; it's a title. But let's start with the Lord. We need to break this down, and this is this is all we have to place. Lord, Curios, Curios, Lord. <coughs> In the latter part of the first century and the earlier in the early part of the second century things began to turn for Christians to the point that by the second by the middle of the second century they were literally being hunted down and murdered by the state and there was a test that they were given one simple out sort of a kiss the ring and you can go they were brought before the Roman official. And they were told, all you have to do, you can be a Christian, you can be a Jew, you can worship God, you can follow Jesus, but you have to say just this phrase. Caesar. Caesar is Lord. And one by one, fathers and mothers. We don't say that phrase a lot. It doesn't, it doesn't roll off the tongue. We should. Our church fathers and our church mothers said, Kurios, Christ, Christ, Jesus, is Lord. And in doing so, they were signing their own sentence. See, because Kurios, Lord is a political term as much as it is a theological term in Jesus' day. Who is Lord? Who reigns supreme? Who is the most determinative, most true, most powerful, most honorable, most worthy of our affection, devotion, and service in the world? Is it a human institution or a human person or is it the Lord Jesus Christ himself? And so James hops in right away in what we believe to be. In, you know, we talk about what we know about James. Uh, tradition says it's the brother of Jesus. But even the same tradition that says it's the brother of Jesus is like. Oh, we're really just saying that. Which is kind of funny. Like, Clement, you know, Clement, Origin, like the early dudes. I'm not talking like German uh, historical criticism. Right? I'm talking about the first dudes. Right. Like 200, 300. Um, Yeah. James, the brother of Jesus, he was certainly writing to a Jewish audience. We get that. And it's likely the church in Jerusalem because James, the brother of Jesus, was a bishop, basically, in the church in Jerusalem. Right. Like you see it at the councils. Paul goes, is like, what should we do with Galatians? And James is in there and James says, no, let him let him live. Let him follow Jesus, right? And so this is James, and he's writing in this context to a people who are subject to following Jesus, and he uses the language that Jesus, this Jesus that you are following, and this is what is amazing. Uh, let me finish that sentence first. This Jesus you are following is Lord. But here's what's amazing. <clears throat> he then says, Jesus, Yeshua. That's a name. That's... That's just Steve, Tim, great Tim, Uh, no. Um, But right, like that—that is a name that people use and would have been used, and people are still named Jesus and and Joshua. You know, Joshua comes from Hebrew Yeshua, which is the same name as Jesus. And so when he says this, he is now not only talking about Jesus as God and rooting him in the spiritual, he is grounding him in the physical. Jesus, the carpenter's boy from Nazareth, a person who walked and breathed and lived. He is Lord a the political realm. He is Jesus, a human person in the physical realm. And then he is Christos. The Christ, the promised one, Messiah, the spiritual one. and even his choice to say, the Lord, Kyrios, a Greek term, Jesus, his actual name, and Christ, something that would be only meaningful to Jewish, Jewish, it to that, right? That's how he says, he presents, who he is serving, right? And so, even from the beginning, what we get is that James is about the full total package. This is more than than a spiritual treatise, but it's not less than that either. And this is more than just a proverbial book of morality, right? Or a moral book of Proverbs, that's probably a better way to say it, right? This is but it's not less than that. And as we approach this, brothers and sisters. We cannot divorce our faith from, we cannot divorce our faith from our present reality, how we live now. We cannot put the spiritual up here and the physical down here. This is what is so amazing about the, the, the Judeo-Christian narrative, right? And I've said this before, and I know it, it bears repeating again and again and again, is that in our story, God touches the dirt to make people, Right, this is an ancient text, and in the ancient Near Eastern world, no god would ever touch dirt, it's unbecoming. And yet in our text, spirit touches dirt and flesh, bone, and crafts it with his hands. And we are following that god, and we are hearing from a servant of that god we didn't even talk about the fact that by calling himself a servant or a slave, he's identifying with the lowly. We'll come back to that because he cares deeply about that. Not today, we'll come back to it later. So this is James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's riding to the 12 tribes dispersed abroad. The 12 tribes of Israel dispersed abroad. He's riding to the diaspora community. So what this means is that whatever corner of the empire that you find yourself, whatever corner of the world that you would find yourself, as you're reading this, if you are in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are of his people. He is writing to God's people, wherever they may find themselves. So for us, that that means us. And this is crazy because we get to think about James as a person who lived in actual space, writing to actual people in history with a political situation that may or may not be easy or difficult to to grasp and fathom, but with cultural normatives that we don't understand, with ways of speaking that we don't understand, and yet at the same time it is meaningful to us. Like This is what I love about the scriptures. This is what I love about the Bible. Right, because I know that that's kind of not, like that's weird, like, to say. Like, I, I love the Bible, right? And yeah, people do all the time, but, but I think they mean something different when they say that. But, but, but these were actual stories of actual people writing to other people. James isn't a construct. He's in not an idea. Just for us, he was a real person with real struggles, real fears, real hopes, friends, family. He saw his friends killed. right? We know it's not James the son of Zebedee because he was killed at least five years before this letter was written. This James witnessed that. This James witnessed the imprisonment of Peter. This James witnessed the imprisonment of John and of Paul. He is in, he existed. And part of us getting anything out of this, part of us being able to see what the Lord is doing through James is for us to actually enter into his space and then bring it to ours. And that's why this first sermon is more like a history lesson. Right? But here we are, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes dispersed abroad greetings. And from here on out, James is going to like Jesus did, talk about how we as a people order bodies in space. For the sake of the kingdom of God. It looks like axioms. It looks like proverbs. It looks like a lot of law. But it's not. What's remarkable as you study through the book of James, what you'll find is that the book of James, more than any other epistle, borrows from the words of Jesus himself. The book of James borrows heavily from Jesus. And do you know where it borrows from Jesus most heavily? The Sermon on the Mount. So let's think about that for a second. Jesus says, "Repent, believe the gospel of the kingdom of God. And so blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God the Sermon on the Mount is a is a manifesto for kingdom living. It is about ordering bodies within the space of the kingdom of God. This is what Jesus is talking about. So it should come as no surprise that James talks and orders and 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 considers God and Christ as king, one and the same, and then he's speaking to the citizens of that kingdom, and he is saying, Now, here is how we are. To live. This is what faith in the coming, in the already but not yet, in the inbreaking kingdom looks like. And he, cite, he quotes Jesus, he he paraphrases and rephrases Jesus over and over <coughs> and over again. Greeting. Consider it great joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you experience various trials. Right off the bat, that's just the rephrasing of Jesus in the Sermon on Mount. It's in the Beatitudes. Blessed are those who are persecuted and reviled for my name's sake. Blessed, happy, consider it what? Joy, my brothers and sisters, when you face Various trials. We're going to go into the various trials more next week. That's what we're going to be talking about next week. Trials, tribulation, joy, patience, and perseverance. But for now, I want to settle in on three words. Brothers and sisters. We're reading the book of James. It's a book for brothers and sisters. What's remarkable is when you study the book of James, you may not think about it. But over and over and over again, verse 2, brothers and sisters. Verse 9, let the brother or sister be humble. Verse Verse 16, don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Verse 19, my dear brothers and sisters. Verse 1 of chapter 2, my brothers and sisters. Should I keep going? It's verse 15 of chapter 2. If brothers or sisters, over and over and over again, in fact, each new block of text, each new training of train of thought starts with my brothers and sisters to the degree that there are many who believe that this wasn't written at one time, that this letter is a collection of letters or a collection of thoughts of, of writings, right? Like it is it is the master book of the blog of St. James, the, the brother of Christ, right? Like, these are a collection of thoughts, but they each start with my brothers and sisters. And you have to understand, even that is a subversive and revolutionary concept. Because the highest aim in the kingdom of Rome is citizen. Everything moved towards citizen. And the reason it did is because that's how the kingdom advanced. Rome would go. They would throw down on some tribal people. They would not kill them, they would capture them. They would bring them in and say, you are now citizens. Keep your customs, pay taxes. Oh, and your soldiers are also soldiers And they were citizens. And you could go from slave to citizen in the, in the empire of Rome. And that's how Rome grew. That's how it began to be the greatest empire to that day in the known world. And that's a really weird thing to say. It's a very blessed thing to say. Full of like, anyways, (laughs) like in their known world, (laughs) right? But they were the greatest empire. Why? Because they, they brought people in and they made them citizens. They conquered them by means of war. And then they made them citizens and they called it peace. The Pax Romana. And so James says, the scriptures say, that in the kingdom of God, the highest identity isn't merely citizen. He doesn't say, consider joy my fellow citizens whenever you experience various trials. He doesn't say, do not be deceived, my dear citizen. In the kingdom of God, the relational identity that we have now is family, brothers and sisters. And for James to say that of Jewish descent in the Roman culture And for them to live it out was to give the world a new family, a new kingdom, a new way of living. And in the early church, they were not like a family. They were a family. They shared all they had in common. They gave one to another. They lived as brothers and sisters. They withheld nothing from one another. Jesus said this to to John as he was on the cross. Behold your mother. Mother, behold your son. This is not his brother, right? This This is John the son of Zebedee. And he's saying your family relations, they're not the same anymore. There's something that happens in Christ that makes you brothers and sisters with people who were once strangers. Paul, when he talks about his time with the, the church in Ephesus, he says, I shared everything with you. I shared my very life with you. As brothers and sisters, And so everything, everything that we're doing, everything we do as a church is out of this. Like, we're not out here this morning. But look, look around for a second. Like, these are your brothers and sisters. When we pray for Doxa Iglesia, and, uh, you know, I thought that my name, Cross, was like a good pastor name, right? <laughs> but, um... That's Iglesia, they have Pastor Jesus. (laughs) Like, You know what, you win, you win. But Pastor Jesus, even in Mexico City, is brother. They are brothers and sisters. In the church in North Korea, in the church in Saudi Arabia, in the church in Nigeria, in the church in Guatemala, in the church in Canada. And even the church in the Southern Baptist Convention, sorry, that was meant to be a joke, but <laughs> um, there are brothers and sisters. And that is a blood-bought relationship, which means it can't be broken by our own stupidity, right? Like my my natural inclination is to distance myself from people who are in a church service wearing red, white, and blue and singing and Eric and Eric. And the American flag. My natural inclination is to be like, yeah, I don't know either. Like, whose mans is that? white? Like, you need to get him, right? <laughs> and yet the scripture says that in Christ we are blood-bought brothers and sisters. I'm an only child. So I sort of make this brothers and sisters thing up as we go. But some of y'all have brothers and sisters. Some of y'all maybe even have a lot of brothers and sisters. And some of y'all have brothers and sisters that you don't like. (laughs) I love them, but I don't like them. If I could choose, maybe they'd have been a distant cousin. But here's the thing is you don't get to choose. And as people that God has brought here, to this church, to this family, we don't get to choose one another. We don't get to craft one another in our own image, because we're brothers and sisters, crafted after the image of God and get this, the body crest the image of Christ, being crafted into the image of Christ, which means our job is not to fix and to change, but rather to live as brothers and sisters. And so Paul, or, uh, James, gives us this. Count of joy, brothers and sisters. And so this is what's amazing, is that the kingdom of God now stands in direct opposition to the kingdoms of the earth because the kingdom of God doesn't advance through war on the other, it advances through peace by way of self sacrifice. And the kingdom of God's highest objective is not to get more tax paying citizens, it is to get more self denying, uh, mutually submissive brothers and sisters. And the kingdom of God now becomes this remarkable force for change because the way change happens is not through from the top down, it's through the Holy Spirit working in us and working up out of us into the world. The kingdom of God now shifts because it is no longer the greatest, who are the the richest or the most powerful who are considered the greatest. We'll see this in two weeks, that actually it's the one who is in humble circumstances that ought to boast in their exaltation and the one who is rich ought to boast in his humiliation. The kingdom of God now is not about giving the the most powerful, the best things first. The kingdom of God is a religious kingdom wherein the orphans and the widows and the distressed are given the first fruits, are given the greatest gifts, are given the most care, the most special attention and and yes it is that big that it deserves (laughs) a base underlaying it (laughs) the kingdom of God people who are the loudest the talking heads who are the loudest do not have the most favor the ones who tame the tongue so all of a sudden what are we talking about here this isn't just the book in the clouds. It's not just the on the ground. It is inexorably both. Our understanding of the clouds is that they are coming to the earth. And therefore, we must have faith and works. That's why James says it. Right? Like, I, we're going to get to that point, and I'm going to spend like Probably a disappointingly small amount of time on it, because I can just say it here, right? Faith without works is Gnosticism and it's dead. Like, works and faith can't be divorced. That's a fool's game. That's what the book of James teaches us. It was necessary for that. They knew it. And this way of living, this brother and sister way of living, this kingdom of God way of living, this Jesus is the Christ, our Lord way of living is necessary for us. And my prayer is that as we walk through this book together, we will come to realize and believe that and live We're excited for this, you guys. Know, we're really excited because Christ is Lord, and we are brothers and sisters. Let's pray. God, your word is truth and.